0: So I'd like to begin by thanking the organizers for inviting me here. So, um, as mentioned, I'm going to talk about morphogenesis, the work that Turing did towards the end of his, um, his lifetime. <coughs> and I'm, I'm going to sort of try and take that into what people think now compared with what, um, the, the time of Turing. So what Turing did was to develop a mathematical model for, um, pattern formation. So, first question to ask, and it's a non-trivial question, is what is a model? Um, so there are really two types of models. So when I tell people that I work in mathematical biology, they always say, oh, so you must be a statistician. And, um, so the way statistical models and bioinformatics work, one can sometimes call these as data-driven models. So the idea there is you take data and there are much, much, much data being developed from, from day to day, and one tries to draw conclusions from those data or make inferences from them. So come up with probabilistic arguments, like, for example, somebody you, you sort of figure out that people who express a certain trait respond in a certain way to a drug. So if somebody comes along and they have that type of trait, then you say, "Well, there's a certain probability." You respond to this drug in this way. Okay. Now the strength of that is that it's in many cases very practical, feasible thing to do. The weakness is it gives you no understanding of why the person with that trait responds in this way. There's no mechanistic understanding. Now mechanistic models give you that mechanistic understanding, but the weakness is that in most cases, it's actually not realistic to come up with a mechanistic understanding of a system because the system is too complicated. So so I view these as sort of being, to some extent, complementary to each other. And so this is what we do down here. So Turing, in his paper 1952, wrote this as a model and a definition of a model. And I think this is the best example of best definition of model that I've seen. This model will be a simplification and an idealization and consequently a falsification. It is to be hoped that the features retained for discussion are those of greatest importance in the present state of knowledge. So a number of points to note there. First of all it's a simplification. So everything isn't put into it. It's an abstraction. Second thing to note is that you hope that in the present state of knowledge you will have kept what is the most important. And therefore, if your model is any good, it should change the present state of knowledge and therefore your model should change as you move on. Now that's something that Some mathematicians have a great deal of difficulty understanding because their view is if you give a talk and you've got a different model from the one you had last year, it obviously means you don't know what you're talking about. I would argue if you have the same model that you had the previous year, then you don't know what you're talking about. Okay? Now, okay. Probably most people in the audience here would agree with this definition of model, but it's not the only definition. And to illustrate that, let's go back to another mathematician, Lewis Carroll. He's talking about the paradox of the complete map. So probably people at the back can't read this, but here's a conversation going on and it says, that's another thing we've learned from your nation, map making, but we've carried it much further than you. What do you consider the largest map that would be really useful? about six inches to the mile. Only six inches. We very soon got to six yards to the mile then we tried a hundred yards to the mile and then came the grandest idea of all. We actually made a map of the country on the scale of a mile to a mile. Have you used it much? It has never been spread out yet. The farmers objected. They said it would cover the whole country and shut out the sunlight not a problem in Britain. (laughs) So we now use the country itself as its own map and I assure you it does nearly as well. (laughs) Okay. Now importantly this is what a biologist means by a model and this is what a mathematician means by a model. A biologist means when the biologist talks about a mouse model or a cell culture model, what they mean is that it is an exact replication of what they're trying to understand, which usually is in the human. That's completely different to this, which is a conceptual understanding and what a mathematician means by a model. And so the difference between this and this, it's actually a lot of grief between this and this, as I find out when I try to get money from biologists, try to publish in biological journals. So, basically all models are wrong. Oh, sorry. Didn't know that this worked, actually. All models are wrong, but some are useful. That's the key thing. Okay. So, I talked about what I mean by model. I said Turing models pattern formation. What do I mean by pattern in this context? Because that means different things as well to different people. So here's an example of pattern. This is a chick, chick embryo, and you see these little rectangles. These are called somites. These form in early development down the side of your backbone. These are groups of cells and these cells actually organize the pattern in your body. So for example the cells, the somites that are up here will eventually give the cells in the arm. They'll give the skeletal cells and the muscular cells in the arm. Okay. And I'm aware I haven't told you about what the Turing model is yet but this is a nice example of something that would fit as a Turing type model. It agrees with Turing type model but when you do experiments, you find the experiments contradict the Turing model. And in fact, the model for this, which is now seems to be what's going on, was actually proposed by another mathematician in the mid-70s, Christopher Zeeman, whom some of you will have heard of. Along with um, a mathematician, Jonathan Cook, he proposed that there was some sort of wave hypothesized a wave going down here that was a wave of competence. So only when this wave passed a cell could a cell become somitic. And then there were clocks going on inside the cells, and the clocks synchronized and allowed cells to group together. That was called the clock and wavefront model. That was proposed in 1976, and in early 2000, Olivier Poitier and his colleagues found the wavefront. And there's a growth factor called fibroblastic growth factor, and lots of clocks have been proposed as possible mechanisms. So an important point to come out of that is that a model might be able to give you something that's consistent with what you observe, but then you have to test the model by doing experiments. And that's how you find out if a model is valid or invalid. Here's an arm, skeletal pattern, salamander and chick, and to a mathematician, these two and our arm is the same, okay? One bone, two bones, loads of bones. So question to ask is, why not have a limb that's got many bones up here and then goes down to one bone? And that doesn't happen. I think it might happen in whales, but doesn't happen in mammals. OK? So why is that? Here's another example of pattern formation. And again, many, many models can give rise to this pattern. This is a petri dish. So it's a few centimeters in diameter. This is work in Harvard by Berg and Boudrin in the mid-90s. And on this is some nutrient. And then you put a bacterium in here, um, inoculate bacteria. I should say not just one bacterium, obviously. Let it grow. Then after a while, you fix it so that the colours give you the different um, concentrations, densities of the um, of the bacteria. This nice concentration pattern. What's actually going on here? Mathematical models have been proposed to this and validated in certain to a certain degree. Is that the cells are producing? Um, are eating up the nutrient, they produce a chemical as a byproduct, and they respond to the gradient of that chemical by moving up the gradient. And you can write that down as a system of equations and show that you get these types of patterns. Okay, so now the question is what do we really want to explain, or what did Turing want to explain? So, symmetry breaking is something that It gets mathematicians very excited. So the idea here was the following. Think of a tree. And suppose you were looking down on a tree and it's growing up. It's symmetric, circular. And then a branch comes off. So the symmetry is broken. Well, how could that happen? Here's other examples as well. So his idea was the following. He said, well, let's assume there's a growth hormone causing the tree to grow, seems a reasonable suggestion, and that it's symmetric, then the tree will grow symmetrically. Now suppose there's a symmetry breaking in the growth hormone, so there's more growth hormone in one place than everywhere else. Then you get the branch coming off there. So in other words, the physical thing that you observe is a readout of an underlying pattern, of chemical. So that was his theory. That's it there. It is suggested that a system of chemical substances called morphogens so then he extrapolated from growth hormones and say let's suppose we've got a pre-pattern in chemical such that where the chemical concentration is high cells do one thing, where it's low, cells do another thing. And this this was really uh, a really concise idea where people before, like Waddington, had talked about evocators, Evocators' idea being that somehow a cell is told to do something. So he, Turing here, put his neck on the line by saying, actually there are chemical substances that are doing this. Okay? And he said that they were reacting together and diffusing through a tissue and that's adequate to account for the main phenomena of morphogenesis. So in other words, the symmetry breaking occurs by chemicals reacting and diffusing. That's a big idea, another even bigger idea I think is he did the following. He said, let's take a system of chemicals which is stable in the absence of diffusion. So, if you have no spatial variation, you have the system of chemicals. If you perturb them, they come back to their original levels. So, stable. Now you allow there to be spatial variation. So, you allow there to be diffusion. I don't know about you, but my argument would go the following way. You've got something that's stable, you add to it something that is stabilizing, namely diffusion, I know what the answer is going to be, you're going to get something that's stable. Turing showed that you got something that's unstable and that's why my hundred years in 2059, you won't be celebrating my birth. <laughs> okay. He came up with this fantastic idea that you could take a stable system, add to it a stabilizing process, and you got the instability. And he called this an emergent phenomenon because you didn't put the instability in. The instability emerged. Okay? Now, you've all probably heard of the idea of the... Genome Project and this idea of one gene codes for one function, here's someone 60 years ago who's saying, actually, it's how things interact that gives rise to the pattern. And now we've got something, a new subject called integrative systems biology, which is trying to show how things interact and give rise to patterns. So he was two generations ahead of his time. In this. And here's the set of equations he used. This is diffusion, this is reaction, and he did an analysis of this, and then he showed that, um, uh, then he shows how doing the analysis of this, you, linear, linear analysis, you can get the instability, so he used the Fourier analysis to get the instability, and, um, and then, The way I think about it is that, having done this, he's then probably sitting there and thinking, right, I've done this approximation to this, could I solve this fully? And I said, what I really need is a computer. Oh yes, I invented that. Right, I'll use a computer. And so he used the computer, well actually these are the conditions he came up with for the diffusion-driven instability. In fact, there's one thing to point out here, so these are the conditions necessary For the system to be stable when there's no diffusion and to become unstable when there is diffusion. And notice that these D's, which are diffusion coefficients, cannot be equal to each other. If they are, that's, those two things contradict each other. Come back to that in a few minutes. Okay, so then here he computed this thing here and this was to talk about sort of patterns on cattle. So, how could we understand this highly counterintuitive idea that diffusion and reaction gives rise right to path information? A fun way to look at this, and this is due to Jim Murray, um, who was at Oxford, uh, is the following Think about a fire and think about grasshoppers. So, think about a field and you set the field on fire. What does the fire do? A fire heats material around it and that catches fire, so the fire activates itself. It's a self-activator. Now let us assume, for the sake of this analogy, that grasshoppers sweat when they get hot. So the fire activates the grasshopper to sweat, the sweat makes the grass wet and therefore it can't get lit by the fire. So here this is self-activator, it activates an inhibitor and the inhibitor inhibits the activator. So think about the fact where there's no spatial variation you just go to a field, you just light it all and it'll burn. So now let's think of it another way now let's put spatial variation in. Which means you light a bit of the field and let's see what happens. Let's assume it's a very windy day. So these diffuse much faster than this. So what's going to happen? You're going to burn all the grasshoppers and have a big black field. And with crispy grasshoppers, which in many cultures is observed is considered as a delicacy. Okay. But now suppose this does not diffuse as fast as grasshoppers. Now what's going to happen? Well the activator activates the inhibitor, the inhibitor diffuses faster, has a good sweat, makes that area of grass really wet, inhibits the activator from burning that part. So now you'll get a spatial pattern. What that analogy doesn't get across is the idea that there will be a wavelength, a particular spatial wavelength of the pattern. There will be a regularity to the pattern. And here are some sort of different patterns that can form. In fact, this is a paper that appeared a couple of years ago in Science, um, a review article by Kondu and Mira showing the different types of patterns that a Turing mechanism can give, and that's the one I've been talking about and you can get more complicated patterns when you go into 2D. So this, he based this on a patterning principle. The patterning principle of this which was actually developed and really pushed by Hans Meinhardt in 1972. His idea of short range activation long range inhibition. So you've got an activator that activates the inhibitor, that inhibits the activator. The activator has a smaller diffusion coefficient than the inhibitor. Now, many models have been proposed for pattern formation in biology since Turing's model. Because a lot of people don't like Turing's model because they say, well, the cells, what about the cells do a lot of other things rather than just sit around waiting for an instruction. So this is the mechanical type models. There's also these chemotaxis models like the models of how that pattern formed in the um in in the bacteria. And they're neurosecretory models, how neurons interact with each other. But all of these models give rise to pattern based on this patterning principle. As a result, they all give rise to the same patterns. So if you want you can play a game. One of you can pick the chemotaxis model and you can produce a pattern in that one another one of you can pick this model and then see if you can reproduce the pattern and you will be able to. So these all these models give you the same pattern. So that means that you can't say just because I get the pattern, that's the model. But what you can say is that This class of models, based on this, give you some properties that should be observed if this principle, patterning principle, is holding. Okay, so natural question, does it work? Well, they exist in chemistry and I'll show you some pictures of that. So people looked for these structures in chemistry for a very long time and finally, in the 90s, Patrick de Kepper and, um, Harry Swinney found these patterns. Now, the reason why they couldn't find the patterns beforehand was when they got two chemicals that had the activator-inhibitor interaction, so they were plausible for, for about, for a Turing structure, their diffusion coefficients were too alike. Remember, we said the diffusion coefficients have to be different. In fact, unless you do fine-tuning, they have to be very different. But what happened then was, De Keppur did an experiment where he was looking for a different type of behavior, and he added a marker so he could see the chemical. The marker bound to one of the chemicals, that in effect changed the diffusion coefficient of that chemical sufficiently, in the sufficient way, that he suddenly got Turing patterns when he wasn't looking for them. This is called the SEMA reaction. Turing talks about morphogens. So since the 70s, biologists have been finding morphogens all over the place. So his idea that cells respond to chemicals and differentiate, change their fate in a concentration-dependent way is true. That's known now. The big question is, do the patterns that we see in morphogens, do they arise by the mechanism Turing put forward, the diffusion-driven instability? So here's here's just the SEMA reaction, chloride-iodide-malonic acid reaction, which gives you the Turing patterns. This is from um, the work by De Kepper. And um, these are some simulations from um, Bossinad's group of the Turing model, and you get the same sort of patterns that are observed. Properties of these models are that you need a minimum domain size for pattern. If the domain is too small, diffusion wipes everything out. As the domain increases, you get more pattern. This is based on linear theory. Pattern complexity increases with domain size. Geometry has an effect on the pattern, and you have these things called developmental constraints. So let's see what each of those means. This is taken from Jim Murray's book. This, I think, is about a thousand times bigger than this, but obviously they've been rescaled so they fit on the page. This obviously is trying to model animal coat markings. So here you have a small domain and there's no pattern. As you increase the domain, now, those of you who are mathematicians should realize that these patterns are actually eigenfunctions of the Laplacian. So this is actually the equivalent of cause, these are equivalent of causes. Okay, so here you've got low density somewhere, high density somewhere else, and that means that this becomes white, that becomes black. Then you get this one which is a higher mode, and then notice this is simulating the full model So, the, for this very, very large animal, the linear analysis breaks down, and this is becoming more like this than than like this. Okay? Now, there's a goat, some goats look like this, but this is my favorite animal. Just that (laughs) one. Okay? Um, belted Galloway. And here's another example of small domain, not very much pattern large domain, lots of pattern. And this, uh, there's a bit piece of meat here. What happened here was they threw a piece of meat for this animal. And then this animal sneaked out to get the meat. And then they developed a friendship. <laughs> Here's an example of developmental constraint. If you think of eigenfunctions of the Laplacian, you know that they get more complicated as the domain gets bigger. So this was proposed by Oster and Murray, who are mathematicians who looked at mechanism; Schubin and Alber, who are experimentalists who just looked at hundreds of patterns and tried to come up with an ex with a, if you like, a data-driven model. So a a um, descriptive model based on what they've seen. This is a merging of the two different modelling paradigms mechanistic people, data-driven people. And they concluded that whereas it was possible to have a spotted animal with a stripy tail, it was highly unlikely to have a stripy animal with a spotted tail, simply because if this domain can only support stripes, if you make the domain simpler, then you can't get a more complicated pattern. Now, usually at this stage of the talk, someone in the audience says, but I've got a cat that's got no pattern here and has got stripes here. Contradicts the theory. And my answer is, if you really love Turing, you should kill that cat. (laughs) Because because it doesn't um, agree with the model. Okay, and here's another example of something doesn't agree with the model. Strike body, spotted tail, and in fact, what this tells us is that the mechanism that's giving this pattern must be different to the mechanism that gives you that pattern. So the model is wrong, but it gives you some insight, and that's the whole point of models. Okay, so this idea that domain size and pattern go go together, so let's do some experiments to see if that works. So this is an experiment done actually 1983 by Albert and Gale. So they took salamander and frog. I can't remember which one is which here. Obviously they form five digits. So let's look at very early development when these digits haven't formed yet. Let's make the domain smaller than you would normally see. Well how would you do that? Well. Domain grows due to cell division. So stop cell division. So add mitotic inhibitor that will slow cell division down. You get a smaller limb. Smaller limb. What will you see? Well, I can think of two things. Perfectly formed pattern, but smaller. Minute, because there's less, um, there's less space. The Turing model says, smaller domain size, less structure. You will see fewer digits. That's what happens. You see fewer digits. Let's do the experiment the other way. Can you make the domain larger? If you make the domain larger, what will you see? Same number of digits, but fatter, because there's more space. Turing model says no you will see the same size of digits but a lot more of them because there's more space. You can do this experiment on chick and here's the normal chick limb that I showed before and now here is the double and this is the six digits when you double the size of the domain. So that all looks well and good so we're all happy that Turing model seems to agree with these experimental manipulations. Here's one of the first examples of a Turing model. It was for um, pattern formation in Drosophila, five foot fruit, fruit fly. In very early development you get these seven pair rule genes. Now if you're a mathematician, this is an example sent from heaven because that looks like it's one dimensional. You solve the model in one dimension you get these stripes, fantastic, it's a Turing model. But then some biologists came along and did an experiment and showed that you could remove any one of these stripes independently of any of the others, which totally contradicts the Turing model. So that's very bad. In fact, Another example, then, of just because you can produce the pattern doesn't mean that's what's going on. In fact, it turns out that this is what's going on. Obviously, I don't expect you to read all of this. There's a huge interaction because, see, Turing's model is based on the following idea. You've got no pattern, and then suddenly pattern appears. That doesn't really happen in biology. For example, you've already got a pre-pattern, due to maternal genes. So you already have gradients in a very early embryo. And what it turns out, as shown by Van Dassau et al, was that you've got this complicated mechanism where you get one pattern forming that leads to another pattern to form, leads to another pattern to form, so the cascade of pattern formation events going on that gives you the structure. Okay, so you might say, well, okay, that shows that the model is wrong. Um, But in fact, what a very nice thing that Othmer and Albert did, so when you get a system like this, these are all genes, these are interactions, there's always the question of what are the parameter values of these interaction networks. That's always a very, very difficult thing to do. What Othmer and Albert showed was that using a Boolean approach that the topology of this is what mattered not the strength of the interactions. So they showed that for this particular network the wiring diagram determined the behaviour not the strength of the connections. Turing had already foreseen this because he said in his paper most of an organism most of the time is developing from one pattern into another rather than from homogeneity into a pattern. So he was recognizing the, the um, limitations of his model. You saw some of these yesterday in Stephen Wolfram's talk and again many different models can give these, these seashell patterns. The model of favor at the moment um, a couple, in the last couple of years lots of papers published in PNAS by Oster and Ermantraut and colleagues, is to say that this is a neurosecretory model. So it's based on fundamentally different ideas to the Turing model. But importantly, mathematically, the two models are equivalent. So the Turing model, interpreted a different way, is the same as the model that's been proposed for this. So you could say the model's correct, but for the wrong reasons. So you must be sitting there thinking, well, if, if this is really correct, that pattern increases with domain size, then how come I've only got one head? Because when I was born, I had one head. Now I'm much bigger. Why do you not have several heads? Well, the patterning process only takes place in a certain window of development. And then your cells can't change their fate. All they can do is grow and divide. Here's an example where that doesn't happen. This is a fish, pomacanthus. It's got stripes here. As it grows, the stripes get further apart until it's about twice the distance apart they were to begin with and another stripe pops up in the middle to preserve the wavelength. This is work from the mid-90s by Kondo and Asai, and you can see the model gives precisely that behaviour, the Turing-type model. (coughs) And here you can see more complicated pattern formation that can be explained by the model. Here's an example of regeneration. So you take striped fish, you ablate the two stripes here. And what's going to happen? Well, I would think you just get the stripes coming back. Instead, you get this. And this is a Turing model gives you that. So once again, the model is much, much more clever than me. So now, those of you who um, maybe have an interest in genes will be thinking to yourself, well, this is just ridiculous because where are the genes in all of this? Well, patterning is a multi-scale phenomenon. You've got the genes down here. You've got what you see up here. The properties up here are derived from the genes. And what those properties lead to feedback on gene expression. So you've got actually quite a complicated system. So those F's and G's that Turing had, which had things like production rates, degradation rates, interaction rates, all of those rates encode the genetics in some highly complicated way. And could we go from here to here and deal with all that? Well that is perhaps the biggest challenge in systems biology. So this is what Kondo did. He took his fish. He made lots of um, genetic constructs, different sort of um, genetic um, behaviours of the fish. And then he asked the question, could I take my model and my Turing model, change one parameter and reproduce all these different patterns that I've got by genetic manipulation? And the answer is yes. That's his model. That's the different patterns. So now we come close to the end, last few minutes. I talked about eigenfunctions of the Laplacian well where else do you see eigenfunctions of the Laplacian? Well, a beating drum. If you beat a drum, the amplitude So eigenfunctions of the Laplacian. You play a guitar, eigenfunctions of the Laplacian. So a few years ago, someone had this very bright idea, if I took a plate that looked like an animal coat, and I vibrated it, and I very cleverly, using hologram techniques, viewed the amplitude as a colour, I should see animal coat markings, and that's not too bad. So I've talked about morphogens, and the question is, we know morphogens exist, we know cells respond to chemical in the way Turing said, do morphogens interact with each other in the way Turing said? That's hugely controversial still, but these are very recent articles where they've identified various chemicals that have short-range activation, long-range inhibition. So there are candidates for the Turing mechanism. But the question still is, is it a Turing mechanism? That's still an open question. I mentioned the fish. Kondo, the the guy that's really made his name working on these fish, he spent a lot of time looking for morphogens, and he couldn't find any. So what he did recently was he observed that there are two cell types in the model, in, in the fish, and they actually are activator inhibitors of each other in terms of promoting growth and sort of in decreasing growth. So then he said the following, he said, well, look, when I solved a reaction diffusion equation, I get all the patterns that you see on a fish. But I can't find the morphogens. But I can find activators and inhibitors. So is there a short-range activation, long-range inhibition? In other words, can these cells interact with each other, not just with their neighbours, but by long range? So this led him to see, can these cells interact with non-local neighbors? And when he looked more closely, he found that they could through extending things called filopodia. So for me, that's an example of boxes. quote, all models are wrong, but some are useful. The Turing model is wrong for this, seems like, but the insight it gave allowed a fundamentally new idea in biology to come out that wasn't there before. And after all, that's the game we're in. We're trying to understand the biology. Last point about genes. You may think that I'm gene bashing in this talk, and I assure you I am. <laughs> this is nice work from Jim Murray and Ferguson and Deeming. Alligators. So alligators have pigment stripes that propagate down the back. There are more stripes on the male than on the female. So it must be genetics. So what they did the following was they took the female, females hatch at a certain temperature, males hatch at a different temperature, they took the females, who hatch at 30 degrees centigrade, and they put them into 33 degrees centigrade, which is the male environment. But they're still females, I'm going to change sex. At 33 degrees centigrade, things speed up, the domain gets longer. What does the model say? Longer domain, more pattern. And they found that the, that the um, female had one more stripe. Didn't change its genetics, responded to Turing's model. So, conclusion from all of this is I, I think that the, that the Turing's model really gave a paradigm shift in biology, and in fact was really championed initially by people like Hans Meinhardt and then after that by people like Jim Murray and various other people. There was Hans who came up with the idea of activator inhibitor. These models, I haven't really mentioned anything about the mathematics of these models. It's actually incredibly interesting equations, incredible types of behaviour. I mean, I've gone to whole conferences that are just looking at the behaviour of these models. So very, very rich for um, Bio- for mathematics as well as for biology. This is from um, ISI and Google Scholar always has more citations, about 6,000 citations of, of the thing and it's still being cited of the order of 200 a year. So the impact has, has kept on going. So I'll stop there and thank you for your time.